0: Welcome to episode 135 of Ace Comicals and uh, yeah so where do you want to start with this one should we start with the Sandman TV show? Yeah let's get
1: into
0: it. Yeah being as that's out now and uh, I've been looking forward to that for a while and I'm not going to waste any time introducing anything else before I've spoken about this because it's very good. So um, i I'm obviously, like, a huge fan of the Sandman books. Read them years and years and years ago. I've recently been going back through them. Um, and it was... The reason, the reason I started going back through them was because of the Lock and Key crossover, Hell and Gone. Mm. So I got back onto reading them because I was reading those uh, Lock and Key crossover comics, which are phenomenal. Um, like, do you know what? I'm actually starting to like the Golden Age Lock and Key stuff better than the actual Lock and Key main story.
1: I can start to understand that from your point of view because you're very much in for like the history and the lore of these things.
0: Yeah, so I'm really, I really, 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 really get into like, I mean, I like, I like that, I love the Lock and Key main story. Don't get me wrong, but I'm starting to enjoy the um, the Golden Age sort of like um, side stories, prequels, and stuff like a little bit more because I like, I'd like to, I'd like to see more of what Keyhouse has to offer because it's been standing for God knows how long. Like I'd love to see, because there, there must be they, they've obviously got de- like centuries of content that they could that they could like publish for that, like centuries of stories just waiting for them to uncover and and write it and, and create it for us. So I really enjoy that stuff and the Hell and Gone stuff. It, it ties nicely to um, the Sandman uh, storyline where where Sandman begins in preludes and nocturnes. Um, and so I've been rereading it recently anyway. And then the TV show dropped and I started watching it on Netflix and um, I back I to back to like five episodes of it last night.
1: So uh, before you go into it. Um, yeah. So like, I, I've read oh, Sandman. I've not watched the TV show yet. Um, yeah. That's uh, just saying like precast. My weekend was taken up by uh, the Evo fighting tournament this weekend, which I devoted so many hours to and became nocturnal pretty much on some days. Uh, So, like, I didn't get around to watching this yet, but I'm I'm looking forward to watching it um, later in in the week. But for some of our listeners who have no idea what a Sandman is, do you have, like, a brief overview of, like, the, the core sort of concept of it?
0: Yeah. So there are a group of personified, I, I will say personified forces um, that exist within the universe. They are the endless, um, a group of beings that were, that are, are infinite from time immemorial up to the end of time, they will exist and they will continue to do their job. Um, and this, this, uh, this, this family of beings, this group of beings called the endless. One of them is called dream. One of them is dream of the endless and dream. His domain uh, is the, his kingdom is the, the realm of dreams. Like he controls dreams. He controls how people dream, what people dream of. He creates dreams in, in a way he controls the human will. And influences the human will via dreams. Like he can, he controls our, um, how, how we act and, and, you know, he, he's the one that can give us and take away hope ultimately and things like that with the dreams that he spins for us. Um, and dream of the endless will be known colloquially in local myths and things like that as the Sandman. Most people will know the term the Sandman and know what the, the the mythology of the Sandman, the Sandman being, um, a creature or a visitor or, a, you know, a being that comes at night while you were sleeping and sprinkles you with sand and gives you dreams.
1: Catchy song as well.
0: Yeah. Hey, Mr. Sandman, give me a dream. So that's, that's kind of like where all of that comes from. Um, Sandman has its roots in comics long before Neil Gaiman got his hands on it uh, and created the Sandman books that we know and love today. Um, all of that is revealed and, you know, uh, throughout the story of the Sandman. And in, in the comics, especially we get kind of a primer and we get like a little nod to, um, the previous Sandman. I think it's the golden age Sandman, um, which is more of a, a costumed crime fighter slash costumed adventurer. I don't think he falls, I don't think he falls under, um, like superhero i think it's more like costumed crime fighter costumed adventurer more in the realm of the shadow that type of thing yeah 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 um but he kind of falls into that category but anyway so the sandman is this this supernatural endless being um and this story kind of deals with the melodrama of him and his family effectively and and like his dealings with the world and how um without spoiling too much his interactions with the world and how that is beneficial and also detrimental to his kingdom. Mm. And I think that's, that's, is that broad enough strokes?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that yeah, I don't, I don't want to go any primer. deep.
0: I'm trying to do this without like getting into it too deep because there's a lot here that if I start to talk about it, I will end up spoiling things for people who have never heard or seen the Sandman before. For those of you in the know, um if i if i throw these out there i don't think anyone's going to understand what this is or what this means um but who's never read it before but for those of you in the know the show appears to cover the first two arcs of the comic um or the first two trades at least which is preludes and nocturnes and then the second one the dollhouse so i think that's issues 1 to 8 and then the dollhouse is issues 9 to 16 so that's that's kind of the material that the first season appears to be covering so far. I've only watched six episodes up to six episodes of it so far. I'm up to episode 6 which is a really really cool point and one of my favorite points in the uh, in the actual story actually and it's it's a much referenced point in the story as well. Um the big at the beginning of episode 6 is something that the pages get circulated all the time. Um so yeah, uh, it's it's quite an uh they circulate in various forms as you know people share them as like inspirational meme type stuff and that kind of thing so it's uh, it's a really cool moment in the comic and I'm really looking forward to actually getting to sit down and watch episode 6 to see how that plays out because I know what's going to happen and um I'm interested to see what they do with it and how it plays out on the screen because I think it's going to be quite interesting but so far it's pretty faithful to the comic uh faithful to the source material it's it's what you want to see it's updated i mean sandman Aged very well, in my opinion, anyway. For something that was published, I mean, when was it? Was it the early it, 90s? 89? I think 89?
1: It was 89,
0: yeah. Yeah, first issue was like 89. So 89 into the early 90s. So it's, um, it, it's for, 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 for the time it was published, getting on for 30 years ago. In fact, over 30 years ago now, isn't it? It's over 30 years old. Jesus. Because 2019 would be the 30th anniversary of the Sandman, wouldn't it?
1: Don't would do age us, man. But yeah, <laughs> you are correct.
0: Yeah, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is um, for something that's 30 years old. I think it's aged exceedingly well anyway. Um, and the new show brings it into the modern age. But for what the material was anyway, it didn't take a lot to bring it into the modern age. It was already fairly um, fairly sensitive and fairly on, you know, the, like the sensibilities were already there. It was already fairly kind of like subversive for what it was at its time and things like that. So I'm quite, um, I'm quite impressed and pleased with it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's great so far. I really have enjoyed the first five episodes. And I can't, I can't wait to see how they adapt the material for the next five because there's 10 episodes in season one um, and all of it's on Netflix now. And I am going to shut up a little bit because I know Leon hasn't watched it yet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, I'm looking forward to, to checking in after watching it. Yeah. Uh, Cause it's been actually a while since I read um, the books, uh, but I did in the interim time, I did listen to the, um, the uh, The audio book that was on Audible, oh yeah, uh, which covers the first three volumes, I think, and it's got like an all star cast, and it 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 was quite a fun medium to experience those first three arcs again. Yeah, I'd, I'd highly recommend it. Apart from the fact that you have to buy it from Amazon or have an Audible subscription, yeah. uh, I'd I'd highly recommend uh, like a listen to it. It's it's very yeah. very well done. But like um I'm really intrigued by this Netflix series because Sandman again is one of those one of those properties that the words like unfilmable used to be thrown around. Yeah. Because like it's there's just so many larger than reality concepts and uh yeah. things that, that that take place there, uh, that there's so many ways to do it incorrectly. But from from what I've been hearing so far, it sounds like it's on the right track.
0: Yeah, I think when you read it, um, it's so, it seems, some of it seems so ethereal and so abstract. And so it's, it's almost like some pages are just pure, raw, like will and emotion. Like you can't, so when people say it's unfilmable, it's like, how do you make that happen on camera? You know, um, and I think in I, I think so far they've managed to capture it very very well, and there's been some very very impressive uh, scenes uh, that I've really enjoyed. Obviously, nothing remains exactly the same uh, as it is from comic to film. There's always going to be changes made in adaptations. We know this. We've discussed this ad infinitum regarding other properties that have been adapted to film and how things have been altered, changed or whatever to fit the medium. And that does happen and it will happen. I'm, I'm not saying it's exactly like reading the comic because it never will be, um, but it does a really, really good job of adapting the material, I must say. Um, so, yeah, Leon, please, please do check that out as soon as possible because there's only so long that I can hold the floodgates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, that is uh, Sandman, and that is available on Netflix, um, and that is up there for everyone to watch who has a Netflix subscription. And I do recommend you check it out, even if you haven't um, read the comics before, if you're not familiar with the source material. It starts at the beginning, um, so so give it a check, give it a look. You are in for a treat. Uh, Leon, have you been doing anything interesting this weekend at all?
1: Uh, well, apart from uh, devoting hours to watching people playing fighting games at the highest level, yeah, which was a uh, good times, uh, n- nothing too too pertinent to to our proceedings here, though maybe some stuff for the not too distant future because there are other, um, let's say, adaptations that I, I, I've. Like possibly been dabbling with or thinking about dabbling with, But I don't think are, from what I've heard are not up to the level of Sandman. But yeah. I am, I am a curious cat nonetheless. So I yeah. will check back in on the next episode for some of yeah. those things.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I uh, oh the, the other things I've been doing is like lots of video games, um, Metroid Dread, because I received that as a birthday gift from you and Rahul and one of our listeners, Marv. <laughs> Listener and part-time Tom, guest, yeah. Marv, yeah. <laughs> Listener and previous guest Marv. Um Marv of Marv of Nightfall, Marv the uh Marv the Batbreaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you guys you guys um you guys went together and bought me Metroid Dread, which is um absolutely incredible. I've been wanting to play it for ages and ages and ages. And I just never got around to getting it and playing it. So thanks for that, guys. Um, and it is, it, is, it is a really, really good game. I've uh, been really enjoying that. I've been really enjoying the old school platformeriness of it. So that's, that's, that's pretty much all I've got to say about that. Uh, playing a lot of Stray, because being a cat and doing cat things is incredibly relaxing. Even if it is in a cyberpunk dystopia. <laughs> a dangerous cyberpunk dystopia, dystopia filled with homicidal mould. Um, Mould, bacteria, whatever it is But yeah, it's interesting, it's a great game um, Oh, and um, Incredibly comfortable Wu-Tang Clan Crocs
1: Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, That was a gift
0: That is a gift, yeah <laughs> Yeah So I, I got a pair of Wu-Tang Clan Crocs For For my birthday Which I'm quite pleased with Because I, I think they're the most amazing thing ever um they are very comfortable Uh, i am now a convert to crocs don't at me about crocs (laughs) because the answer you'll get is i love them shut up
1: maybe we can take that game back (laughs) and the rum too while you're at it (laughs) say why do you want to take that back do i not deserve it anymore (laughs) i mean we're still in the honeymoon period of your birthday so we'll allow it for now but this uh, crocs supremacy can't can't be be unchecked. It, needs, it requires some pushback. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, they, they are comfortable. If you ever tried a pair of crocs on, you know. Honestly, they are very, very comfortable. I don't wear them in public. I don't I don't I'm not one of these people that goes out and like walks around supermarkets in crocs.
1: It's Yet. a slippery slope. It's a slippery Yet. slope. <laughs> and I don't
0: wear them with socks.
1: Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a slippery slope. Yeah, it's a gateway.
0: Yeah, no, I'll be. Uh, yeah, it's 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 slippery though because you, you all you've got to do is just forget to take them off, and because you're walking on clouds, you keep walking on clouds, and the next thing you know, you're walking on clouds in the shop across the road, and you're like, oh.
1: I think your but, saving yeah. grace is that you uh, hit the pavement more often, and, and, and uh, whereas like if you were a frequent driver. That's where that's where you you wake up at work and you've been wearing them for three hours,
0: yeah, exactly, yeah, which for me, I can't do that because i I walk a lot, I skate to work, I bike to work, and Crocs just would not withstand that, so yeah, um, let's dive into today's comics. So I've got some really interesting stuff to go through today. Um, I have been doing some deep, deep reading on historical hamakhara comics, and I've been excited to kinda of get into this on the cast because this is like my passion at the moment is vintage horror comics and um learning about the uh Comics Code Association and the censorship of comics and the kind of McCarthyish um proceedings that surround that and how this this like mass hysteria and how like if you think about it like it is another again it's another mass hysteria for our time a, a lot like the satanic panic this this rallying against comics because comics are turning children into juvenile delinquents kind of, that was that was happening in the 1950s and even before that actually there was there was anti comics um anti comics literature anti comics thought anti comics uh people and and like Opinions before that that kind of like made it into mainstream media and stuff as well, mm. uh, which I'm starting to learn about. So like the sentiment's been there since comics began, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that comics beginnings were as effectively as working class entertainment. So if you think about comics in a way that they are, um, they're they're easy to digest. Like, it, before we had things like television, you know, it, it, was, it was easy to digest entertainment for people. It wasn't too... It wasn't as taxing as sitting and reading a novel. And it, it became, like, a, a entertainment of choice for, like, the working class. Um, and, and, like, a lot of... There were people that learned to speak English through comics, like, in mm. the early days of comics, like, in, the, in what we might call the Platinum Age, like, 1900s up to the 20s, like, immigrants... Into the into America into New York and would learn would would have learned English via comics, um, and it's quite quite an interesting thing to look at because it, it's it's a very as far as I'm concerned it's a as far as I'm concerned as far as I can see from what I know and what I read, it's a very working class medium, um, and it's interesting to look at it through that lens and how people might have tried to shut it down, like. Not just from a, a, a you know, a, a, a content perspective because it was, you know, comics back then, they were, for the time, you know, th- there were comics out there that were incredibly violent, salacious, whatever. But like, you would, it, it, you, from like a, a, someone learned looking down on, looking down on the art form as lowbrow. And this, this kind of like hatred, this kind of like this, this anti-comics thought kind of also comes from a place of like superiority in a way as well. Um, And it's interesting to look at it from that angle. But the angle that I'm going at it from today, where I'm starting, uh, because one of the books I wanted to discuss with you today was Terror Illustrated. So this is kind of a twofer because I'm going to talk about Terror Illustrated. And then I'm also going to talk about Marvel Tales of the Zombie and the idea of horror magazines and how they're connected. So we've touched on this a fair bit in the cast, largely because I found the whole, find the whole thing absolutely fascinating, the, the whole idea of the Comics Code Association and how that all came about. So 1954, um, we see the formation in the beginning of the Comics Code Association of America. And this was a sort of a response to a... Massive, massive, widespread moral panic over the content, the general content of comic books, mainly around crime and horror comics at this point, but the general content of comic books and uh, Won't Somebody Think of the Children? How, like, this might have been influencing the minds of children and uh, creating or influencing juvenile delinquency. And these fires were stoked by a certain man named Frederick Wertham. Uh, with his book called seduction of the innocent, which basically said that the contents in comics alluded to contents in comics that alluded to or included sex and violence and crime were turning children to juvenile delinquency. That was his whole thesis and people bought it as anti-comics, people bought it. And like I said, I think some of it comes from a religious point of view. Some of it comes from a superiority point of view. Um, like people viewing comics as a base art form to begin with
1: yeah like the whole like lower brow yeah. versus highbrow art and sort of yeah. the uh the bourgeois like look with like literature, literature versus uh yeah. like yeah. funny books
0: i mean like there's there's whole things out there from even like there's there's, there's thought even from uh, further back than frederick Wertham where people um i can't recall the name of the gentleman now but i've got a um i i've I, I read about it recently he was a he was an author of children's books and uh, he's like basically his whole thing was put down a comic and pick up a real book because it's more wholesome um obviously he was just butthurt because comics were outselling his books and he's a children's author <laughs> um but yeah like that was the whole kind of that's the gist of that bit anyway but like so the code itself the comic code itself was based largely upon an unenforced code um, which. Was like created in 1948, which had been um, created based on a Hollywood production code called the Hayes Code. You might know about this, Leon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So when was that? That was 1940, wasn't it? The Hayes Code, and it was based on. So, so all of this kind of comes from. It's kind of slightly. It's kind of based on the Hayes Code. The most interesting thing about um, the Comics Code is that it was voluntary, and I will come on to that in a moment. But it wasn't; it was voluntary, but at the same time, it wasn't voluntary. So it's modelled after this 1940s Hollywood production code known as the Hayes Code. Yes,
1: I think the Hayes Code ran from the mid 30s to the late 60s.
0: Yeah, and um, the code, the, the Comics Code, basically, in in broad strokes, was there to ban um, intense violence, gore, horror um anything of a sexual nature and what you know that that anything like that, anything along those lines was banned in comics from that point forward, or that's what the comics code's I idea was or what it what it was there to do. And that's what this this um that's and this came about because again, people like Frederick Wortham were out there saying that this was influencing people and causing them to you know become juvenile delinquents. Um, and, and like in 1954, there were hearings, comic book hearings. So these were like the um, these were televised hearings about juvenile delinquency. Um, and I've actually placed a link in the show notes, if you're interested, um, to full transcripts of the 1954 Senate subcommittee hearings into juvenile delinquency. If you're interested in reading those. Uh, because these were televised and um, it was more, they were very show trial actually. Um, p- upon reading through, it's very show trial It's very one-sided. It, 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 they'd already made their mind up by the time they got to this point, basically with these, these trials where they were calling forward comics creators and things like that. Um, and, you know, thoroughly grilling them. And then uh, people were, kind of like forced to quit the comic book industry as a result um you know distributors were questioned wholesalers were questioned news newsstand vendors were questioned on how comics were sold and things like that and it was unbelievably biased in favor of the anti-comic sentiment that was hovering like a specter at the time um and it's it's just absolutely incredible if you wanted to read through those transcripts they're there in full So, and and even before the Comics Code was adapted, and before these trials, some places in the U.S. were burning comics wholesale. So they were having like these like huge bonfires and things like that, because they'd been whipped up whipped up into a fury by the you know the media basically saying, telling people that comics are the devil and are turning your children into demonic criminals and stuff. Like comics are turning your kids into criminals. Comics are the devil. So people just they were burning these comics, like having bonfires and. Um, it's, uh, I mean, I think some, the city councils of Oklahoma and Houston, Texas so Oklahoma City and Oklahoma and Houston tes- Texas, they they banned crime and horror comics outright and um, I think Los Angeles tried to do it as well, but that was deemed un- unconstitutional by the courts so Los Angeles didn't get to do it, but Texas did and Oklahoma did um, yeah, I mean The Comics Code, in full as it was in 1954, can be found easily on the internet. I'm going to read through some of it here, some of the more interesting bits. So, um, the Comics Code, in full as it was in 1954, Crime shall never be presented in such a way as to create sympathy for the criminal, to promote distrust of the forces of law and injustice, or to inspire others with a desire to imitate criminals. Uh, If crime is depicted, it shall be as a sordid and unpleasant activity. Policemen, judges, government officials and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. I wonder why this had such a backing, Leon. (laughs) I wonder why.
1: Yeah, it's a curious. It's a head scratcher.
0: Yeah, yeah. Criminals shall not be presented as to be rendered glamorous or to occupy a position which creates a desire for emulation. So just from that second line I read out there about policemen, judges and government officials, you can... You can already see where this is going, and why this this had such a backing, and why everyone was so biased and eager to kind of like force through some kind of ruling. Um, and and even though this never passed into law, the Comics books code, the comic books code, was enforced almost as if it was a law. Um, there's like something here about um, scenes of excessive violence shall be prohibited, scenes of brutal torture, excessive unnecessary knife and gun play. Physical agony, the gory and gruesome crime shall be eliminated. No comics shall use the words horror or terror in its title. All scenes of horror, excessive bloodshed, gory or gruesome crimes, depravity, lust, sadism, masochism shall not be permitted. All lurid, unsavory, gruesome illustrations shall be eliminated. Inclusion of stories dealing with evil... Shall be used or shall be published only where the intent is to illustrate a moral issue and in no case shall evil be presented alluringly, nor so as to injure the sensibilities of the reader. Will somebody think of the children? (laughs) Um, Scene here. This is this is one of the more interesting ones. Scenes dealing with or instruments associated with the walking dead, torture, vampires and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism and werewolfism are prohibited. There's half our podcast gone. (laughs) half (laughs) there's half my comics collection gone (laughs) profanity obscenity smut vulgarity or words or symbols which have acquired undesirable meanings are forbidden so the the art the, the aim as you can tell from what i mean is completely to completely sanitize an artistic medium right um and it was it was like in, in the way that they went about doing it and in the way that they went after the people that worked in the comics industry, it was, it was McCarthy-ish. Like, and I'm not using that lightly. I'm saying it was. It was full on, like, a, a, a McCarthyist witch hunt, basically, for people that worked in comics. If you read through some of the uh, transcripts of the court hearings and when particular creators are called up to speak and things like that, it's quite, um, quite eye-opening. Mm. And it's, uh, yeah, it goes on to talk about how, you know, can't have people, nudity in any form is prohibited as indecent or undue exposure. Um, Females shall be drawn realistically without exaggeration of any physical qualities. Well, there goes Rob Liefeld's career. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it goes on and on and on and on.
1: I think that's like most comic designs from the 60s onwards are gone from that. (laughs)
0: yeah um it gets it goes on and on and on and on and it's very very restrictive and very almost draconian in it's because you've got to imagine like sensibilities at the time compared to what they are now and you've got to think about it that way And you've got to think about like even when you when you read the comics that they were talking about if you've ever read any pre-code comic stories and things and you look at what, it, what, what, they're, what, they're, even what they're trying to ban at that point in time, compared to what we have available now, isn't that bad. But for them, because this is like a, a more subdued time, things were obviously a, a little bit raw and, and things, pe- people were a little bit more sensitive to things, weren't they, back in the 50s, I suppose, but yeah.
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny though, because like, without breaking off into like a major tangent, it's always funny when you look at these codes and, uh, all these different rules and stuff, whichever mediums they're for. And it's like, yeah, it, it wasn't a case where like, uh, people could just like open up a device in their hands and then search all manner of depravity or whatever, uh, in, in a second, like we can now, Yeah, it's like back then it's like, f- I guess for a, a, a certain number of or a certain type of population. Uh, things were kind of sheltered in some way but even then following things like the great depression and stuff like that like a lot of like hardships and sort of agreed on like savagery was happening a lot like the the codes uh happened after like two world wars like yeah millions of people like dying uh there's like it's kind of like this fairy tale that society, Western society was telling itself at the time yeah. um, where it's like uh, sort of uh, in ways like reactionary and, and, like nationalist in some degree. Cause like, I don't know if the comic code had these cause um, but like the, the, the Hays code on, on w- which it had that like you say semi base and like uh, has a lot of similarities with that had all types of weird stuff in there. Like uh, homophobic stuff and they're basically banning the the depiction of of any anything not heterosexual um like in, yeah. interracial um any type of interracial relationship for the most part was is, was banned uh, under the term miscegenation um yeah. just like loads loads of uh things in those in those codes which uh sort of gave the game away a bit more in, in terms of what, what you're trying to protect like different types of dancing and that they're referring to like yeah uh, like jazz and, and rock and roll that was getting pretty big in the time it's like it's very like not even a dog whistle mm. at that point but it, it seems like the comics one was more focused towards like things that would affect that they thought would affect uh children whereas yeah. like the uh yeah. the haze code was just like cinema in general for all audiences yeah
0: because children children were like a a big demographic for comic sales even though they even though comics have always been aimed at and bought by adults even back in this is what i was trying to get at when i was saying even back in dawn the dawn of comics uh when comics were first a thing and they were like cheap entertainment for the working class it it was something that working class adults were buying and reading because it what was that it was it's what was there at the time and it was entertainment um and they were getting them in the newspapers on sundays you know the Sunday Fridays yeah. or whatever, things like that. So there were, you know, it, the, it's not. It, it's like they were aiming these at that. The, yes, children were were probably a key demographic of comics, but adults were buying and reading these too. Um. So you had, to, I mean, what you've just saying there about the Hays Code. I want to. I'm going to read out a line here now. Um. So, sex perversion or any inference to same is strictly forbidden. Um. And then there's something here about, um, where is it? Um, Illicit sex relations are neither to be hinted at nor portrayed. Um, It says here rape scenes, and then it says as well as sexual abnormalities are unacceptable. So I feel like that might have been a dog whistle towards homosexuality.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. But yeah, we've got things like that in the Comics Code as well, Leon. So (laughs) it's there. Um, You can read it in full as it stood in 1954 in a lot of different places. It's it's widely available. Um, So yeah, I mean, this is the the interesting thing about the Comics Code was although it wasn't uh, voluntary, there was no requirement by law to get your stories code approved. It would be enforced by the people that were actually distributing and selling the comics because they would refuse to carry comics that hadn't been approved by or carried the seal of the code. So it wasn't voluntary. It, it it was voluntary, but at the same time, it, if you wanted to sell comics, it wasn't voluntary. Yeah. Because it's like this
1: this yeah. sort of trap set It's like how, yeah uh, related to this, like the MPAA who like, uh, took off from the code and basically do like film ratings in the USA. Yeah, uh, there. if if you rate something in, in the in the UK, we have a rating called the 18 and it doesn't yeah. mean uh, like adult film or like pornography or anything like that. It just means movies that they've, it's been rated that only adults can see in America. The closest they have to that is the R rating, but the R rating still has lots of um, things you can't really do. And when movies uh, get a bit more further than R rating, you have what's called NC-17. But you never really want to get the NC-17 because it means loads of shops and loads of places and cinemas and mainstream theatres will not show your film. So basically, even though they have that rating available if you want it, no one, very rarely do people go for it because it just it will kill your film. And it's the same, sounds like the yeah. same with this comic.
0: Yeah. Um, so it was an evolve or die situation. Which is where I get to the two things that I want to talk about today in relation to this. Um, publishers, you know, it was is evolve or die, adapt or go out of business. And a lot of them ended up going out of business. Like, EC Comics fell. Um, EC Comics' whole thing was horror. And a lot of the new regulations completely neutered what they were able to publish with regards to horror comics. So it, it, it completely killed their whole model basically. Um, and it was specifically a, it seemed to be specifically aimed at them in their books. Like there's a whole thing, um, with this that you can read about that you can find the information. Some of the, there's, there's links in my, uh, in, in the episode show notes to a couple of things that I think you'll find interesting. Um, but, You'll be able to see that um, a lot of this surrounded titles published by EC. Um, AEC stands for Entertaining Comics. So, yeah, a lot of the a lot of the new regulations seem specifically aimed at horror and crime comics. And the only reason that EC, the only thing that EC published that managed to survive this was Mad Magazine, and that's because they changed it into a magazine. So it was originally a comic. They started publishing it as a magazine to circumvent some of the code and continued publishing it as a magazine to be able to get away with it, mm. to keep publishing Mad. And, and we've had Mad all those years since. Uh, Mad's, Mad Comics, is, Mad, Co- Mad Magazine is gone now, but it, was, it, it survived for a long, long, long time.
1: Yeah, it's very recently, isn't it? Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, another one that was able to publish horror stories through this loophole was Warren Publishing. Uh, We've talked about in an episode way back in episode 73 uh, called Campfire Tales, we talked about Creepy, which was um, Warren Publishing getting away with publishing horror stories um, and being able to keep them as horror stories with teeth, shall we say, Mm. uh, by publishing them under the magazine format and calling it a magazine instead of a comic, thereby circumventing the need to submit to the comics code and being able to sell it as a magazine people wouldn't complain about carrying it um because with it being a magazine it 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 was seen i suppose as less appealing to children because it's not a comic but it's like it's a magazine in name only if you understand what i'm saying
1: but there are like cost considerations of that do you know
0: um not that i was able to find out no but um I think I think that this is how they got around this is how they got around the code this publishing loophole of being able to call things magazines. Um and today I want to talk about a book called Horror Illustrated which is an experiment by EC um in at the time what was a new form of sequential art that the publisher termed picto fiction uh which was considered which was basically it consisted of paragraphs of prose text set inside gorgeous illustrations um terror illustrated was very short-lived only survived three issues uh, three well three issues were completed and only two were published so only two made it to the newsstands uh, the picto fiction lines because there was other magazines they tried this picto fiction thing with where it was kind of like um so it was aimed at adults it was a magazine uh, the cover of terror illustrated actually says so the full cover adult tales of terror horror and suspense illustrated so adult they're using the word adult in the title they're aiming this at adults and they're circumventing the comics code and they're continuing to work on horror comics or sequential art surrounding and including horror and terror keeping it at a, a level that is actually um you know that, that has teeth That not uh, not completely uh, defanged horror stories keeping it at that level and publishing it as a magazine to get away with it, which I found quite interesting. And they called it PictoFiction instead of a comic, but it's essentially sequential art still. It's just paragraphs of text set into beautiful illustrations that are sequential in nature. The illustrations move move through time one step to the next. You could still loosely call it a comic.
1: Um, very cool.
0: Yeah. Uh, the PictoFiction lines didn't go well, though. Terror Illustrated was cancelled when EC's distributor went bankrupt because EC just... The code destroyed them, like absolutely destroyed them. Um, These were aimed at mature readers and publishers and publishers' magazines as a way to circumvent the restrictions of the code. Um, From a business sales point of view, the experiment wasn't a success. But in my humble opinion, these magazines were beautiful and ridiculously cool. I've got a collection here from Dark Horse. Uh, which I picked up recently is a hardback collection. It, it contains the two published issues plus the unpublished third issue, which is quite a treat. Um, some of the content in the stories hasn't aged all that well. I think that comes with the territory as far as vintage horror, horror books goes. And this also goes for the next book that I'm going to discuss as well. Um, I really do like the whole premise and the delivery of the stories within, like the size of the images and how immersive, because it's magazine size and format. How immersive it becomes. And, and it's this, it's black and white, incredibly detailed realism. And it draws you in. And then the prose approach to writing as well helps to draw you in. Um, it's like you're getting double immersion because you're getting like immersed in the prose. And then you're also getting the image as well. And because the prose is set into the image, you are swimming in what's happening. If that makes sense. More than mm. more than following things speech bubble to speech bubble sequentially, um, you've got these words just floating inside this, the the scene um, in these frozen snapshots in time for you to move through and consider. It's like it's like almost as like a disembodied voice providing context from the corner, and it really does get into your skin in this staccato nightmare logic kind of way, which all the best horror, horror comics kind of do um so yeah the collection i have is a hardback published by dark horse and includes the unpublished third issue and it's a beautiful collection i have to say i'm always thankful that there are people out there dedicating to preserving these works um and and for future generations to be able to see and learn from and also a snapshot it's a snapshot of this tumultuous time period in comics publishing and creation and i think it's a perfect example of like Creators and publishers getting getting creative and thinking outside the box to try and get around the draconian measures that the code was imposing, I suppose um, being able to circumvent our comics code in this way gave creators and publishers the freedom to continue to make horror stories with teeth. It allowed them more freedom, creativity uh, creatively and um, with the content they were producing. It's an interesting shift in the industry that was caused by this like self-censorship and imposition acceptance of the comics code um and this is a creative solution to a curious and unique issue and that's why it's so interesting to be able to look back on these and and it's it's so good that this hardback collection exists and it's why it's so interesting to me and why i enjoyed it but they're good stories all the same anyway Um, they're still great horror stories even today like i said comes with a disclaimer because of the time it was written and some of the things in there aren't insensitive. And although, um, so the insensitivities towards women and people of color and things like that, they they use them in these stories to, to paint the picture of like a horrible person that you're not supposed to empathize or sympathize with, right? Because this person's a bad person. This person believes this, that, and does this, that, and the other. But I think it's, I mean, they st- people still do that today. They use like, a, 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 they'll use a character's, bigotry to paint them as a bad person so that you don't sympathize with them as as a a a, a tool in the story right
1: yeah it's like it's such a like a lazy shortcut
0: yeah yeah and 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 what i'm saying is that in the content of these comics it's kind of used in that way but it's done in a heavy-handed way because of the time it was made if that makes sense
1: yeah 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 i I assume they like lean all the way in
0: kind of yeah with some stuff um yeah, it was, it was a curious solution. So this moves, this moves me on to the next thing that I want to discuss that is linked um, because this is Marvel Tales of the Zombie. Um, so in 1971, uh, fast forward to 1971, Comics Code is relaxed ever so slightly. Um, they are now allowing vampires, ghouls, werewolves, and they are allowing them as long as they are used when handled in the classic tradition, such as Frankenstein, Dracula, and uh, other, like, what is considered highbrow liter- literature, like, classic stories, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, that kind of stuff, right? As long as, you're, as long as you're, like, using the characters in that way, in the way of literary tradition, shall we say, you're fine. Um. And, and this is be- obviously because these works were just available everywhere in schools and things anyway. It's not like we were censoring the books, so why should we censor comic content that mirrors the books, right? So they were allowing um, all of this stuff now. The floodgates were open. Um, there was a boom in horror comics in the 1970s. This, this kind of like relaunched the... Um, Th- th- relaunched horror into the zeitgeist as it were comics wise in in the bronze age in the 1970s the bronze age of comics and we get this boom in horror comics we get things from marvel like werewolf, werewolf by night and um, you get the uh, the marvel's dracula stories you get all that stuff um and it's quite interesting to see how it's handled um in fact coming back to something that we have discussed recently um it is morbid time <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Mike, uh, Michael Morbius uh, comes from this kind of like relaxation of rules pertaining to vampires um, and a lot of other characters and things that we start to see in Marvel in the Bronze Age when things are getting grittier anyway. Um, we're starting to see a resurgence in horror comics and this enjoyment of horror in that way. And we're starting to see horror, horror, horror stories with teeth again because things are getting a little bit more relaxed and they're allowed to do things that they weren't necessarily allowed to do previously. Um, and obviously, still some were unsatisfied, and creators and publishers continued to use workarounds, like publishing things as magazines. Enter Marvel Tales of the Zombie. A magazine, rather than a comic book, it, 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 it got away with it. So they were allowed to publish these comic stories about The Walking Dead still, because The Walking Dead was still prohibited. Zombies and the Walking Dead were still prohibited under um, under the comics code in the 70s, even though they relaxed it for werewolves, vampires, and everything else. Um, so because they published it as a magazine, they got away with publishing stories about a zombie, basically, and they got away with doing it, like, massively. And they got away with publishing stronger content with other themes as well, like violence and... um partial nudity that kind of stuff yeah and the walking dead hence the name of the, the name and the nature of the magazine itself so sometimes it is simply referred to as zombie the strip itself simply referred to as zombie or marvel zombie um it's a black it's black and white comics and um it's published under what was known back then as the marvel monster group imprint um and i am going to be talking now specifically about the strip feature because this was a magazine so there was loads of other stuff in there um but the strip that was in the magazine the main feature of the magazine was this strip called zombie or um and it ran for this this ran for 10 issues from 1973 all the way up to march 1975 right so and this was like published by um marvel's parent company magazine management and they used this uh, this Marvel Monster Group imprint and that's what the brand emblem was on there as well. So in keeping with its theme and content to star in this new title. Um the editor-in-chief of Marvel at the time, uh, uh Roy Thomas, um took a character called Simon Garth who appeared in a standalone pre-code horror tale um, that had been created by um, Bill Everett, who's the guy that you will know behind Namor the Submariner. So he's the creator of Namor the Submariner. He created this character um, and introduced it when Marvel was still Atlas Comics in com- in uh, Menace number five in July '53, right before the Comics Code hit and killed all that. Um, and it was like a, it was a seven-page story, and it was reprinted in Tales of the Zombie Number One. So the character was called Simon Garth, right? And uh, Simon Garth was this this zombie that they plucked from this old horror comic, literally brought him back from the dead, okay, to star in this new horror magazine. And what they did was they sandwiched the original story between two new chapters that had been created for the purpose of the book. Um, and created this uh, this running ongoing story from this 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 horror one shot from back in the early days of Marvel, which I find quite remarkable and quite interesting. Um, the art had been slightly altered as well, and they did this they did this continuation, this prequel and, and sequel material that they put either side of it. So they sandwiched it with two chapters that provided context material, literally brought him back from the dead, from beyond the comics grave and from and and through the barriers of the comics code um now like i mentioned earlier when i was talking about terror illustrated there are themes and sentiments presented in this book that have not stood the test of time and you can imagine what i'm talking about with attitudes toward women and people of color like i've said before um and um you're not supposed to sympathize with simon garth he deserves what happens to him in the prequel material um and it gives them space to create this redemption story for him is how that's how they're using it uh it's it's a little heavy-handed but it bears pointing out simon, simon garth is this bigoted capitalist pig coffee king of new orleans right he's horrible horrible man um and uh he becomes the victim of a curse um he gets kidnapped by his gardener who wants revenge on him for firing him and he gets kidnapped and taken to a bunch of voodoo cultists who um, try to use him as a sacrifice to perform a rite. The rite is interrupted. Um, Simon Garth gets away. Um, this, this, like, gardener, who's not a nice person anyway, tries to perform, uh, tries to get the voodoo priestess to perform um, another rite to bring simon garth back from the dead because when he's escaping he he gets killed anyway they kill him before he can escape he makes it so far into the into the swamp and then they shoot him dead um then he gets brought back to life as a zombie under the control of this gardener who uses him as like a a slave to steal for him and things like that um and it just goes on from there basically um he manages to regain some sentience by getting the charm that controls him Uh, and he, and it's like, it's, it's a zombie in the traditional voodoo myth sense. Um, where they are like under the control brought back from the dead under the control of a priest or priestess, like necromancy type thing. Mm. Um, but then he manages to regain his will because he comes into possession, uh, of the actual charm that is keeping him under control, but he's still dead. And it's, it's got, I, I can draw a lot of parallels between this and swamp thing. Um, it's got that, it's got this very Swamp thing vibe about it. Um, but yeah, it's, um, the comic itself is a great example of bronze age horror and it stands the test of time in regards to its stunning artwork and originality. The story's compelling and it's a curiosity of its time because it's this like this, this rehashing revival of a pre-code character. And then they're using the magazine workaround to be able to publish it which I thought was quite interesting. And I really, I really enjoyed that about it. And I, I, I really like this ingenuity that I'm seeing in the comics industry at the time to get away with stuff like that. I was quite, I, this, is, this is why I wanted to talk about it because it's quite impressive in that way. And it, it does have this like really incredible, like um, that, that typical Bronze Age realism in the artwork. And it's all black and white. And it's, it's just beautiful in... In that way, in, in how like immersive and, and how how much movement and power there is in those images. And you know, when you see the terror in people's faces and things like that, it's just it's spot on, honestly. Nothing like it for that. Um, I mean you look at the names behind it as well. It's drawn by John Busemmer and Tom Palmer. Um, this is the this is the new artwork. The old one was obviously Bill Everett, but like um when when they in in the first issue and onwards when they sandwiched it between the two extra chapters it's it's all john Busema and tom palmer and it's it's absolutely gorgeous um and again i recommend checking it out as a curiosity of the time and uh that concludes my little diatribe about the history of horror comics and publishing things as magazine to get around the comics code and i hope you found that interesting (laughs) leon
1: yeah, because like yeah. yeah, bits bits and bobs uh, are stuff that um it's like I knew uh, uh, about the ins and outs of the comic code and stuff, but I didn't really know the the history behind it. Yeah, and I just all the I different just, uh, loopholes that people would use to get around it.
0: Yeah, I just find it wild that people were burning comics like that. I, I didn't realise that because you you think about the comics code when you when you first start to learn about these things when you first become a comics fan, you know about the comics code. And you know about the defanging of comics from the 50s, but you don't actually learn about the intense mass hysteria that actually surrounded that. And, you know, how people were actually like burning comics in protest and things like that, you know, parents like. And it's, it's because they were whipped up into a frenzy by like, you know, this kind of like this anti-comics literature, anti-comics articles and this anti-comics sentiment that was going around at the time. Um another interesting website actually that i've included in the show notes uh that i found is like an archive of like anti comic stuff um and if i find that for you that is called um lostsotti.org and uh it's got like um all sorts of things like screenshots of editorial responses to the attack on comic books, like things that were included in the backs of comics, mm. you know, about how they were trying to say, well actually you know we're not that you know we're not that bad and things like that and this is this goes right back into the 40s, so this is way before Dr. Wertham even like got on um yeah i mean one of them one of them is, is actually responding one of the ones on the website actually is responding directly to dr earthen but like a lot of this is in the 40s and things like way before these these hearings and things so this is like this this campaign went on for years this campaign against comics and it's not unique to post second world war because even before that there was anti-comics sentiment and this is like a really big archive of of like the whole anti-comics crusade so there's a lot of stuff on here that's really interesting uh, so you can check that out. So that's lostside.org, and I've uh, I've linked that in uh, the show notes. So I've linked that, and then I've linked the transcripts of the fifty-four Senate Subcommittee hearings. So if you want to check those out, please do. Go ahead. Um. Yeah. So I think that those are both great examples of horror comics from different periods. Uh. Different periods in post code history that you should probably check out. So it's Terror Illustrated, uh, which was the EC Picto. Um, Picto Fiction magazine. Can't use the word comic. And then uh, the uh, Marvel's uh, Marvel Tales of the Zombie, which you, should, which you can check out, which is pretty cool. Pretty groovy 70s magazine. Um, so. <laughs> Where do we stand now, Leon? What do you want to go into next? We've got two reviews to do.
1: Uh, Let's go into... I mean, these are both books that would have been burnt back then. Um, Oh, uh, yeah. Big style. Big style. Let's jump into some some Clementine.
0: Yeah. So Clementine uh, by Tilly Walden. Um, This is published by Image Comics. This is set in the Walking Dead universe. And I'm going to preface this by saying I don't know an awful lot about the Walking Dead. In fact, I know pretty much shit all about The Walking Dead. This is I've like never played of... the games. I've never watched the series. I've only ever dipped my toe into the original comic series slightly. I don't, I, I, I don't know much about The Walking Dead at all, so Leon, help me.
1: Well, this is one of those rare instances where it's a comic thing that uh, I have more knowledge on than you do. <laughs> yeah. Which is uh, very strange. But yeah, basic. I mean, everyone's heard of The Walking Dead, but a basic overview of The Walking Dead franchise uh, is it's the. It's basically a post apocalyptic action horror series set in the immediate aftermath of a zombie doomsday event, uh, set uh, primarily in the u s where we follow uh, a band of characters led by initially uh, Sheriff Rick Grimes as him and his cohorts try to survive this uh, this apocalypse basically and as the as the series goes on, speaking about whether the comic book or the games uh or or the show as well is uh the zombie element or walkers, as they are mostly referred to in the show becomes more of a secondary issue, and each of the different types of of the franchise each of the different mediums focus more on the humanity and how society deals with itself after such a momentous event and all the Interactions and then ensuing cliches. Well, things that are now cliches about like, uh, who are the real monsters? Like the the world surrounded by zombies, but who are the real monsters? Uh, and and all that stuff. So yeah, it, it's, it's quite uh quite a bleak uh, entity, I should say. It's funny because it goes across so many mediums, and I've dabbled in each one. But yeah. Uh it is quite quite a bleak entity, but it's um in each various form, it's a kind of addictive page turner. So I uh and this is uh the uh all of like The Walking Dead is created by Robert Kirkman, who's like obviously a primary at Image Comics, uh Tony Moore and Charlie Adlard. Yeah. And uh I read up to I think uh Issue 100 before bouncing.
0: So, wait, Leon, you're trying to tell me The Walking Dead's more than a plastic tat factory? Uh,
1: yes. Uh, well, th- y- this is how, like, th- this is the prehistory. This is how the yeah. plastic tat got made. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, I I read for about uh a 100 issues, I believe. I think in total, there were 193. Uh, and I, I think. I think this is common with a lot of things. So I remember like we were speaking off pod and Rahul was in a sitting position and he said, look, he knows a few other people who bounced off around that time. And I think eventually my tenure with Walking Dead always sort of like, I kind of get burnt out about it. And it's not the bleakness, it's not blah, blah. It's just like, I don't know. Like I generally, I like loads of stuff with zombies in there, but yeah. Uh, zombie fiction is not my first go-to and that's yeah. kind of fine in this because like i said they kind of become they become more uh, like this foreboding terror It's their power in numbers rather than oh no one zombie is here that like changes pr- pretty quickly uh but it's still a thing where like uh, okay it's, it, it's like okay here we're with one faction and and when they're with that faction those initial factions like the stuff with uh Oh, well, the governor—I think it was called. Like that stuff in the comic and in the show is like really interesting. Like how like fascist governments show up in, in, uh, in these sort of post-disaster times, and there's a lot of good commentary there, and a lot of good character work going on. Uh, and there's like some missteps here and there that I think wouldn't be done now if it was written now. But after a while, it's like they move to another town, and there's another faction, and they move yeah. to a third town it it just gets so tiring. Um, and like, I, I kind of like stopped caring and they introduce all these new characters and like fan favorite characters to like die of weight earlier than you expect. And I'm kind of like, eh,
0: like, so it's like, is it like a ship of Theseus uh, type situation where it's like, is it still the walking dead? If none of the walking dead originally that was originally there exists.
1: Well, I think it never quite hits that period because as far yeah. as I know, when it gets to the end stages, uh, some of those, like primary characters and, and primary motivations are still there but yeah. yeah it kind of becomes like a soap opera in some ways I'm not that interested in there and then yeah. I burnt out on the show relatively faster than I burnt out on the book because uh, I got to uh to watch the first three seasons and during the first two seasons it was quite hype it was like uh Quite a uh, well-talked-about show. I think the first season was show-ran by uh, Frank Darabond, uh, and the casting and the setups and everything were really good. It was taking lefts where the comic book went right and stuff, so it was it was quite fun. Yeah. Uh, it was a little bit overrated, so I'm like, some people... Uh, at the time, I was wondering, like, have people never watched a TV show before? People are going mm. a bit too crazy for the show? But, like, it did really, like, help solidify and put AMC on the map. I think tied with, like... Uh, Mad Men and Breaking Bad—that those three pillars are really uh, what made uh, AMC the powerhouse. It, was a, it, it was to be.
0: A big title for comics as well. Big, yeah. Like people, uh, people went mental for it. And, and I mean, like I remember, like I think when when it shambled along. Am I shambled? Am I the? Um, am I right in saying that it was like right in the middle of the zombie apocalypse thing being in the general zeitgeist anyway?
1: I think like was that I like think, that was a
0: big thing in media anyway at that point wasn't
1: yeah, it? Yeah, I think so and like we were like a few years past like the uh, previous Resident Evil adaptations and stuff like that uh, and a few years past uh yeah like you know where we even get into the level of like a Shaun of the Dead where it's like parody mm. parody and stuff like that but I, I do think that it it becoming a juggernaut bigger than AMC ever thought. Uh, cuz I think like the show helped the and the franchise itself become bigger yeah. than the comics. The ever show, made it. the
0: show, accelerated its success massively. And I think, I think when it came along, because there had been so much zombie apocalypse thing stuff in in the media, I think that's why I dismissed it. And that's why I've always found it quite difficult to look to to, to kind of like find anything that I want to engage with Walking Dead wise, because I'm always like, well, it's just another zombie apocalypse story." Yeah, and but that's then, fair. Yeah, and that's
1: how I—that's how I would have been. But I think I yeah. started to read the book because I heard good things about it from people I respected, and I watched the TV show because I read the books and it, it, uh, the aforementioned things that were saying like uh, Frank Darabond running it and uh, yeah. it just having a lot of like really cool actors on there, and it, it was a fun show. Like uh, it started off as being quite a fun show. It did a couple of like interesting things, like with the zombie apocalypse idea it looked great um but then by the time i got to season three and they introduced like the governor storyline that i was speaking about from the comics and it was so toothless and sort of like meandering that like when i tried to watch season four got two episodes in i was like you know what i'm done so like i stopped and then i didn't Block any spoilers and stuff, so I'd find out how things happened and when Negan got introduced and stuff like that. And I never once felt the itch to go back. And then in that time, I remember like a friend of the pod, our friend uh, uh, Anthony Askew. He um, he got really into it and watched the whole thing, and it was really funny for me to view his excitement going through the seasons. Uh, Whereas, like I just had no compulsion or will to return. But uh this leads me to the my third interaction of the Walking Dead franchise, which is the video games, particularly the games made by Telltale Games, which are generally they make uh what are referred to as adventure games. Uh a lot of the time they're sort of advancements of like the uh, and click style where it's mm. like you're on a screen moving a character and then you get you you got, you like solve puzzles and to to like advance uh, and what the walking dead games uh did particularly with that uh the that engine they that had is that it became sort of less puzzle based and instead it was like the people were the puzzles and then you had the mechanic which sort of became like um uh, m- m- which is the whole this character will remember this because you you have decisions that, that play out to yeah. um like not just different endings because it does funnel you back in but um, different motivations and different events that happened during the storyline de- depending on like your relationship with, with the characters and, and whether they trust you or not or what your relationship is and that was really novel back then and particularly uh, season one had like uh, a really good set of people working on it I think that uh... who was it there was uh... Gary Witter, who is a writer who follows since like the PC gamer days, but has become like a writer of Hollywood. Uh, co-wrote Rogue One, uh, wrote uh, some episodes during season one, uh, and season one was really effective. And it was like uh, at the time, I, it really had an effect on me. And the main thing that uh, that worked for me with that, with uh, the game, the first season of the game, over like anything else before it. It's not just that I had control and it's my choice and stuff, but it's to focus on these particular characters is really interesting because the world's yeah. already set up from all the other previous lore that you've had. So, like, you get to spend time with these characters, and you've got like a uh, Lee Everett, the main character, who's like a, a, a falsely accused man who, when things break out, is being uh, like uh, taken to prison, and then mm-hmm. uh, and that, that's how his zombie story happens, and then he comes across very early on. Uh, this this girl whose parents have been killed, who's all alone, called Clementine. And then for the course of the five episodes, because uh, they were releasing them every couple of months, uh, you you build this relationship between Lee and Clementine. And like, I really, the writing was really good. And like, when you get to the end of that first season, uh, like, I was I was really uh, invested. I was really uh, cared for the characters because you. you you play uh, the protagonist is Lee, and so you're looking after Clementine, but your actions stuff affect her. And it's not just it. Was, I think I think one of the things I really liked about it is that it wasn't just this uh, everyone's cool and the apocalypse thing. and You just deal with things you, you don't blah blah. There was like moments where like she's being super quiet and she's obviously depressed, and you're like wondering how to deal with it and so like it, it was really like in depth. And uh, I, I had a great time with it and. After that, I played, uh, after a gap, I played season two, uh, but I never played the rest. And I think there's been like three, four seasons of it, which, uh, ha- uh all of that happens before, uh, this book, uh, this Tilly Warden books, uh, begins. So there's a lot of, uh, stuff that's happened that, like, for me, who was a person who initially has played them, uh, ha- doesn't know what happened, but you're dropped in here and, I think that whether you're a person like me who hasn't played all the stuff, whether you're a person who has played all the stuff, or if you're a person who hasn't engaged in any Walking Dead at all, I do think this is a good uh, jumping in point. Definitely, yeah. Like, you don't really feel lost, but uh, that's the setup, Greg, to uh, Mm. the, the Walking Dead adventure. So, yeah,
0: I mean, I... This is the first bit of Walking Dead media I've ever, like, fully engaged with. Um... And that's this is this 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 book here by Tilly Walden, Clementine, Book One, Clementine, Book One. Um and I think the reason that I enjoyed it so much, because I have all these horrible preconceptions about the Walking Dead franchise anyway. Like I've never Like I've said to you but it's never been something that I've been able to engage with because on a base level I've always had this kind of like eh feeling towards it, like this 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 general indescribable mehness towards it, you know. And this is the first thing that I actually engaged with. And I think I, I think I enjoyed it so much because it is Tilly Walden. And because I think Tilly knows how to make a comic very well. Of course, she knows how to make a comic. She teaches making comics. Um, but I just, I just really enjoyed it on that level as a comic and as a story about, like, how, how, the, how the apocalypse is secondary in this and how the it's more about how these kids are overcoming various traumas and growing up within the zombie apocalypse. Like, because we're looking at a generation of kids in this story that have grown up within the... They've not known anything other than the zombie apocalypse. Um, they've not known anything other than this wasteland full of shambling dead. Uh, and, and all the trauma and everything that comes along with that. And it's just interesting looking at it from that point of view and, and like how, um, how sad it is like for these, these kids to have grown up in that. And, and like the, the kind of the baggage that having to survive from an early age comes with. Um, and yeah, I just thought it was really heartfelt and I just, I just found it interesting on that level. Um I really enjoyed the artwork and and the paneling from page to page and and how things play out and how things move. Um obviously Tilly Walden has this gorgeous style and this gorgeous way of doing things and we've talked about um things that Tilly Walden has made before on this cast. Um and I I've always got time for her creations like this is this is no this is no exception to the rule that anything with her name on is great <laughs> as far as i'm concerned i mean leon where do you sit with this
1: yeah uh, I, I i quite enjoyed it like um going in because of knowing that it was picking up after the games and stuff i was kind of uh, like reticent mm. uh previously and uh I was like, yeah, I'll read it at some point, but like um uh like I was wondering like I know it's gonna be made so that like complete newbies can go in, but like yeah. am I gonna wanna sort of like uh spoil the later seasons that I do wanna play it at some point in the future, but am I do I wanna do a little deep dive and watch a couple of videos to get, get us up to scratch? And then I decided not to and just to to jump in as is. And it's funny because I've not played that season 1 or 2 cuz in season 2 uh, Clementine becomes the protagonist but like i haven't played those games for many many years and i was effectively in a different part of my life back then but i still have a lot of fondness uh for them and particularly the character of clementine who yeah uh like especially playing that first season like i felt responsible for clementine clementine was my digital daughter for those five episodes mm. and uh it's funny how like going back in and it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, like one of like, it's like knowing someone and then you move or they move. And then after five or 10 years, you meet up again. And uh, a lot of the same vibes are still there, but there's, there's some differences because you've gone through different experiences in your, in, in your absence. And that's what's kind of like here where it's like, it starts off early and like, Clementine's in crutches and has an uh, amputated foot, and I was like, "Whoa! Okay, what if what have I missed?" And uh, it's it's a really compelling start to to this journey. And Clementine was already like jaded jaded when I last saw her in season two of the games, and here she's like hyper jaded, where she's a, a, a full sort of lone wolf and is very, for good reasons, uh, very uh, distrustful of of anyone else that she comes across and has sort of lived outside during this apocalypse. And as you said, has grown up during it. And uh, it's the true like hard mode, uh, uh, school of hard knocks. Uh, mm. uh, like she's had to learn how to like skin animals and feed herself. More than she's had to learn, like arithmetic or, or uh, in school and stuff like that. Because yeah, all of this has upended her life since she like, was a kid.
0: I love the little details like that, like the illiteracy of the characters and everything else, and like obviously they're they're learning, they're teaching themselves to read in parts of the book. But it's just interesting how how all of that works. Um Yeah, and it, yeah. it all
1: feels very deliberate and hmm. uh the characterization and what uh has been pulled into this book like it all just fits straight away and like for me it was like uh man like uh like like wow you've like you've changed so much but you're still still Clementine but it's like the world has been uh, extra cruel to you yeah. uh but yeah like uh, going straight in I think that the story that the the book follows is such a smart and compelling choice here to like partner, especially initially, partner Clem up with very sheltered and naive characters to hmm. sort of give a contrast to the, the outlook because she has an outlook of survival, but the outlook of survival can sometimes be like detach you dehumanize you yeah because you're, you're you're picking stuff so you live and oftentimes that choice is as can be a very savage one because yeah. it means that you might not stick your neck out to save other people because it could be a trap and mm. uh and like the toll that can take on you
0: it's it's interesting thematically and also as like a, a the as a way to in a way that it's written um and in the way that these, without giving away too much, sheltered characters are used. Um, and in the way that they are living in the story, as if, because they've, been, because they've lived the way that they've always lived, nothing has changed for them. <laughs> uh, and when you think about it on that level, it's actually it's actually really interesting how these characters interact and how... How their life is actually you know they're they're used to it almost in a way they're used to things that other characters wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be used to because that's that's just that's just they've not known anything else if you understand what I'm saying yeah and yeah. Like the,
1: the the sheltered ones have uh like faith and a belief in in things, whereas like Clementine is a bit more nihilistic to she's, a degree she's she's seen the world yeah yeah
0: and yeah she's she's been but, through it
1: <laughs> yeah but it's one of those things where like um like that level of like coldness and hardening it, it, it isn't super beneficial mm. for us it, it is it's beneficial for survival but it's not the only thing you need because yeah as uh as it can sound and the book never presents it in that way at all which is like really nice and refreshing but as 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 it can sound, uh, you do need a reason to like wake up and keep fighting and keep pushing north. Otherwise, yeah. why not just lay there and die? Like yeah. uh like you do like you need you need all of it. You need to be able to survive, but you need to be able to there needs to be a reason to survive. There needs to be a human under there to survive. And I do like how uh Clem starts off like super cold and distant uh for like good reasons, but then Softens, but not in a unbelievable way. Yeah, it's very measured and very uh doled out part by part. But it's not, there's not like a character flip like halfway through and, and suddenly like uh Clem's uh, skipping in the streets or anything like that. Uh, it's it's uh very measured and very suspicious, mm. but just um, but. The humanity is there, and comes more to the surface and yeah, like I think all that like leads directly to like the art, which is like 'cause it's it has that like black and white monochromatic look, and uh, primarily especially at the beginning we we're, we're in like uh, colder climates and there's lots of like snow and everything like uh it it's uh. It just has this bleak, lifeless, like feeling, which, like, I don't know it's it's so effective because and because it is like that black and white look, especially in nighttime scenes, which are like uh, you're dealing with like various different like levels of grey to get there, yeah. and it has that sort of contrasty chiaroscuro look, where like the theme is also there, but it's not heavy-handed, but it's it's mm. very much like because so much of it happens wordless you might get like four panels and so much has happened, so much emotion has been been passed on, but it happens effortlessly in this book. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it helps it be a page turner without having too much exposition. Even if characters who are explaining like, this is what we've been doing in this place and stuff like that, it never like stops the story. It's always doled out in a way that is more like realistic to how people speak without being frustrating. Mm. which is like a, an amazing sort of tightrope to walk with a story like this. I mean, this whole book is a, is a tightrope because it's continu- t- continuing on a story uh, in comic form of a character who was created from a comic book series, but only in the video game adaptation of the comic book series. It's a spinoff of a spinoff. Yeah, and so there's so much like inbuilt stuff yeah. to be able to present it in a way that someone who like yourself, who hasn't engaged with anything can still uh, not just uh, be able to orientate yourself in the story, but to actually enjoy it and be and, yeah. and immediately be uh, pulled in and, and uh, relate to the characters is is uh, a very amazing sort of gravity defying trick.
0: Yeah, and and I I really did like massively enjoy it. Like I'm I'm not lying when I say that it was it's it's a really it's a really really good story and it's really it was really it was a really nice read. Um, I did it all in one sitting, like the whole of book one in one sitting, like start to finish. (laughs) Um, and I just can't, I can't get across how it, it just, it just had this, this amazing, um, the way the art as well as the. the the art as well as the writing and the way the story flowed, it just had this amazing kind of like compelling readability and it just pushed you on and pushed you on and pushed you on. And you just, you just wanted to know what was going to happen next. You wanted some, you wanted characters to survive. You wanted, you wanted to find out why characters were how they were. You wanted to learn about, you, you wanted to see people overcome things. You wanted to, you want you, you were rooting for them to do well. And I think in the end, like that that that's what pushes you from page to page so like it, it becomes a thing where their reason for survival the thing that's pushing them on to climb and carry on like you almost have a similar force compelling you to get to the end of the book in one sitting no matter how you might need to eat or sleep or get a drink <laughs> you know it becomes that kind of force honestly it does you've got that whole one more page feeling yeah and it is it is it is a great a great book and and like uh, like technically as a comic as well it's absolutely gorgeous and i think that's i think that was the the main draw for me was that because obviously not being not having been a walking dead fan on the level that you are leon i i could interact with it on the level that i just thought it was an amazing comic and because i just like tilly Walden's work anyway so yeah that's where i sit with it so um, I guess that's Clementine, uh, and a uh, Clementine, even or Clementine. Um, this,
1: this is happening to you because of John Constantine, isn't
0: it? It is, yes, yes, big style. I knew it, yeah. I
1: told you I haven't watched uh, uh, any of that show yet, but from the things that have like leaked through, that's a thing where I've, that's been blowing loads of people's minds for some reason. <laughs> it,
0: it It messed me up, big style. I had to have a whole moment sitting in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I had to rethink my life big, big, uh, so, you know, like going back through memories where I've said it wrong and just, yeah, Clementine. Yes. Uh, And that is entirely the work of Tilly Walden. that is published by Image Comics and that is available now. Uh, We were talking about Clementine book one Um, because I think it's, yeah. So these, this is, is is going forward, is it going to be published as like OGNs? Because was uh, this was this an OGN or was it was it individual issues before it was collected? Because I only know it as, as book one.
1: I only know it as book one as well. Uh, mm. uh, perhaps because uh, I think uh, I've I seen this mentioned on, online, but it, it came to my attention to read it because of Rahul wanting to yeah. read it. Um So I'm unsure, uh, but as far as I remember, I think it's uh, like graphic novels. Yeah.
0: I must say, by the way, I must put I must draw to your attention that this is Rahul's book. This was Rahul's choice, who sadly unable to join us this evening. Um, we will get in his thoughts on it as well. Um he's more I think this this was this was gonna be his thing. Um and we all read it. Um and, and we read this because of Ray. So thank you, Rahul. Um, for, for getting us to read this. And uh, when you join us for the next episode, um we are gonna have your thoughts as well um moving on from there is the uh, a book that we were given for review um by the creator um so this is eat my flesh drink my blood um going in um this book's for mature audiences isn't it <laughs> um it's uh it is blood soaked, it is short and sharp It is framed like an original horror short It would definitely have been burnt In
1: the days uh, of the comics Code. If you brought this back You'd be burnt with it
0: <laughs> If I went back in time to
1: 1954 Yeah Frederick
0: Wortham would have uh, He would have he like Burst into flame on contact with this book I think No amount you, couldn't, you cannot
1: clutch the pearls hard enough you don't even yes. need, to, you need to go that deep in there. You would just see an interracial relationship and his head to explode.
0: Oh, yeah, true. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, blood soaked, short and sharp, framed like an original horror short through a red filter. Like, the whole thing, it just screams visceral raw and bleeding from page one. It's an, uh, an unrelenting drop directly into hell. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you... Um, the blurb from the website so this is available via dauntlessstories.com. so this is like a, a small publisher and we were given a review copy of this so on their website they say uh, john and lisa are engaged and looking towards their future when john receives a letter from his past john's estranged father is dying and his mother wants him to meet with them both for mass at their parish uh so he wants them both to come to mass at their parish church Lisa, curious about this mostly blank spot in her fiancé's life, presses him to heal his family wounds. John agrees on one condition. Lisa must join him. What comes next is a dive into a uniquely absurd romantic horror by the creative team behind the critically acclaimed graphic novel Broken Bear that asks, How far will you go to be with the one you love? (laughs) And it is uniquely absurd in that way, Um, I have to say. Um... Yeah, it's um, it's a similar comment, I have to say, to Midnight Mass on Catholicism and the Eucharist sacrament. And when you think really hard about things like that, the ghoulishness of it, like the, the body and the blood of Christ, like, and how being devoted and consuming the body and the blood of Christ can grant eternal life... Um, It's actually an incredibly clever book for me in the way that it holds up a mirror and twists this very specific ritual. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's a soundtrack as well, which I I, I bought and downloaded the soundtrack. Um, And if you're going to read the book, I think the soundtrack just adds that extra level of immersion as well when you're reading the comic. Um, It's like a 20-minute long score, and it fits perfectly with probably the... 20 minutes to half an hour it will take you to read this book because it is relatively short um and uh yeah so leon will get some of your thoughts before i go further
1: uh yeah i i uh i had a good time with this uh with this book it's uh short and sweet and it has a mission statement uh that it sticks to and achieves and um i think most of that magic is done because of like the uh the mood that it's able to immediately from the first couple of pages uh, uh like dump on you. So it's, like you said this yeah. red tinged uh like with like the visible brush strokes uh like lots of like uh contrasting trees with like a, a soul like white church in, in the middle of, at the end of a path like all of it is very foreboding and uh not not my idea or of a good time location wise you're um,
0: immediately in a circle of hell aren't you as soon as you start uh, looking at it yeah. yes yeah and
1: yeah. uh like uh, i've spoken about on the cast before how i uh grew up in a religious home used to go to church stuff like that and if the concept had no horror in it, and it was just like, you have to meet your uh, partner's parents and go to a sermon, that's horror enough for me. Uh, like you don't need to have any uh, red-tinged skies on the way there. I just don't want to do that thing. Yeah. And earlier on uh, with Lisa, uh, I don't know why she's so hyped. Like Because I guess she wants uh, c- uh, c- like reconciliation between uh yeah. her partner and his parents uh it's jonathan isn't it yeah, yeah. and I, and i'm like babe chill <laughs> like we don't <laughs> want to do this and that's without it being anything but it's always going to feel off and everything yeah. about it feels off because to a degree lots of these things when you're in it 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 feels like like all the tropes of like cult stuff yeah where it's like uh an extended family with different rites and rituals and stuff like that, and everybody sort of in the know. And there's uh, specific things that you do at specific time, and you all say the same things at the same time, and chant/slash sing different things at the same time. Like, uh, it, it, those are all the telltale signs of like like cult type stuff. But like, obviously, major religion stuff like that is just accepted because it's part of the uh, the mainstream. And, of society at that yeah, point, yeah, yes, and it's been around for millennia, yeah, uh, especially, uh, in like, well, it's everywhere in the world, mm. they missionaries everywhere, but like, it's its cultural cachet is so powerful and strong, and that, like, uh, especially all the iconography of a lot of the stuff, which is like, in particular, Catholicism has like penciled in, uh, and made the iconography like so iconic to flip the uh, re, uh, recursively use a word like it, like all the a lot of the cool like christian stuff from movies and horror movies and stuff like that comes from catholicism because uh that has the most like go ham uh, like visual stuff and stuff and, yeah um,
0: catholicism is kind of like even even without it's it, Catholicism is, I think is the most of, of all the forms of Christianity out there. It's the most superstitious and it's the but, one that has the, the kind of like the deepest and most kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for. Um,
1: it has loads of extra law.
0: Yeah. Like uh, more,
1: way more extra law.
0: It's the closest one to the occult in some of the stuff, some of the things they perform and some of the things they do, it's like, it's like the one that stands on the other side of the mirror, like directly on the other side of the mirror, if you understand what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. And it's yeah. big and loud and it's the easiest one to be mirrored by, uh, like a court practice and stuff because it's, uh, yeah. It's also been like, an, uh, like one of the ones that's been a main arm of like governments and stuff like that. So like it has so much cultural influence and.
0: It's the most esoteric.
1: Yeah, and it's also yeah. the, the greatest one to make freaky in, um, yeah, in, in stories, in in horror stories, and to, to like quote unquote flip it on its head. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like already with that, like uh, I, I'm this stuff, like you start to s- just think about how th- how weird things are in general, and I think that helps give it an extra forboding uh, forboding tone, especially like when um and this is quite like a short story book so i'm not gonna ruin anything big because i think like the true enjoyment will come from uh going through and 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 uh letting the book have it have its way over you but like uh earlier on when we uh go to the, uh this church and they uh they do a really cool thing with the the paneling where yeah. we got a lot of wide panels giving us the geography and. Uh, the, the sort of vantage point of like the size of this thing and, and who's mm. there, but then they also like put uh like musical notation in, in the gutters, um, yep. uh, as the characters are speaking about like uh the 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 notes being uh mm. dissonant and yeah, uh, being like like uh like being being out of rhythm in, in some way and, and that being like an intentional thing, yeah, uh. And and it's framed as a sort of a natural, but thematically constant thing.
0: Yeah. And uh, then, and then like when you're doing what I did, like those organ musical notes that are in the gutters between the panels that envelop the scene and you're listening to the score in the background as well. It's like this awesome technique that really does immerse you. And this, like this celebration of God, that's not a celebration of God and like this original religion that's been hijacked by something else or so it seems and this like demonic intentional dissonant notes and the the, like you know reveling in the flaws of mankind and the animalistic side of humanity and everything else and it's just it's incredible in that way in how all of that works together in that particular scene um yeah
1: and i think that this uh like painted nature of the colors where you get this texture and you get uh things where like it's not a block color. It's like the way the, the the paint has been applied, and so you have like gaps, uh, like in, in between from like layering. Like it, it has this really, uh, I guess, tangible or tactile feeling. Like it all feels very lived in and real, and it doesn't feel like things are popping off the page or it, everything feels diegetic, like it all feels of one within the space. And I I like that because it really, even though these are pretty like hip uh, people who like, uh, have their own sort of like banter between each other, it never feels like it's winking at, at you the story yeah. it never feels yeah. like a well you, yeah you, this is like in other horror movies isn't it or it's like lemon blah 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 like yeah. oh i hope i don't become as flesh eating zombie or anything like like it doesn't do any of that stuff it, it takes itself seriously and every interaction that yeah. uh especially like on the first half every interaction feels very uh like natural it feels like what these characters who have been established here what they would say and what their relationship is like and Mm. how they would deal being in this heightened weird scenario where they don't think things are off kilter and you don't really exactly know where things are going.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, like you were saying, there's something wrong and incredibly off from the beginning. And, and like, I, I honestly do feel like I'm going to see a film adaptation of this on Shudder one day.
1: Very likely. Uh, Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's got that energy. It really does. Um, and it, it plays well with modern hotter sensibilities and framing and it, it has that bite and it's interesting play on the anxiety surrounding meeting a family or more intimate like relations or like, you know, members of a, a lover's friendship group, even that kind of thing. It's got it's, like the anxiousness that surrounds all of that. Like, I actually feel that in my I, myself, I actually feel that meeting friends is scarier than meeting parents sometimes, you know. Really? Um, yeah, best friends. Um, but like, there's almost like a, a there's a facet, there's, there's, there's the facet there as well of the trauma of growing up in a heavily religious community or even a cult. And it draws parallels there as well. I mean, like, like you were saying before, this distinction between cult and religion that we make. Like, if you really think about it, where do we draw the line? Like, <laughs> it's, it's pretty close when you start to look at things like this, when things hold mirrors up to it. Um and everything's washed in this sort of like deep angry blood red. And we're taken between days leading up to the event where the color work is calmer and more serene. And then we're getting into like when it's actually in, in the actual heat of the event, when it's all this hot red flashes of the present event and whatever's happening and the twisted logic that's going on. And yeah. Um, just, just the pure demonic barbarism of it all. And, it does have this real cinematic modern shot quality that i absolutely dig like this without giving too much away hellish revelry revelry and celebration of earthly life (laughs) eternal life where it counts like it it's it's nothing beyond nihilistic is what it is at that point um and you could almost take a read of it in a sense that there are you know like You could almost you you could almost read it in a way that um, rich waspy families top of the capitalist pile who make the rules, you know, just exploit what's here while they're here for all it's worth. And they feed on the generations below to sustain and maintain their lifestyle. Just saying. Yeah, Um, I mean,
1: that's (laughs) uh, not even a layer deep. So, yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah um it's uh it's an incredible 57 pages um and i you know what i really like about it as well you know when you you like look at the back cover and the front cover of the book itself like this this stylizing and framing to make it look like a straight to dvd thing like i can fully see myself walking up into a shop looking at like horror movie dvds and looking for something to watch and being like what the fuck is this shit this looks gnarly like you know and and like for $10 American, which is roughly eight Elizabeths, I will give this a go. You know what I mean? It's like one of those things. It's like, yeah, I'll do that.
1: Um I, I just want to call attention to things can be hard to talk about because I don't yep. want to spoil anything. But yep. later on in the book, there's a uh, a bit of a transition. And I really love um where there, there, there's like, basically, like, like lamps or say torches and yeah. like a uh a, an altar of some sort. And yeah. the way that's <clears throat> Sorry. the way that's done where it's like um baby one sec. Let me drink drink some water. The way that's done where it's like uh the image is sort of fizzing out out of the black into the red, it's It's really good because it really gets the point across of what you're seeing, but you also get that feel of like I'm waking up from something uh, into something completely more horrifying, and just the tone, the the tone, the use of colors, where like I while it doesn't have like uh, like don't expect like uh, an Argento type thing from what I'm saying. But I do get a, a very yeah. big, like, uh, giallo-type, uh, I don't know, uh, like, I guess, like, a bit of Suspiria vibes in here, the original, yeah. like... Yeah, yeah, Because, like, there's, there's a build-up, there's lots of weird stuff happening, and you get to kind of, like, a level of crescendo, but, like, it, it's so visually impactful, and the use of, like, uh, heavy colour tones are, are like it carries everything it carries the theme it carries what the characters are feeling but it also yeah. just looks really cool and yeah. uh I, I think it nails that
0: yeah and uh yeah i think i think you you've, i've said everything i want to say about this because it is awesome and if i try start to talk any more about it i'm gonna spoil it uh, but yeah it's um ten dollars listed as on the website roughly eight quid and it's worth every, every pound coin,
1: honestly. R-rated, as the back of the box says.
0: Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, it is literally framed like a DVD, and even when they give the credits in the story, um, I'm going to give the credits in the style they do in the book. So, uh, Dauntless Publications presents a Marcus uh, Jimenez production, directed by Frankie White and Adam Markovich, and uh, cinematography by AHG. So what that translates to in comic terms, um, because I've got the full credits here. So um, it's published by Dauntless Stories. It's written by Frankie White. Uh, The art is by um, Adam Markovich, and colors are by uh, AHG Color. So, yeah. That's, that's how we translate those credits. But I, like, I love the, 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 the whole kind of play on it, the cinematic framing of it. I like that. Yeah. I like that it's trying to play in that liminal space between films and comics and playing on that in, in that way. And that is Eat My Flesh, Drink My Blood. Uh, and that is available at uh, dauntlessstories.com. Um, and it really is a story for the dauntless. <laughs> <laughs> um and i do fully recommend you check that out and yeah the uh, the soundtrack's on there as well which um for the for an extra four quid give it a go it's worth it yeah so um that has been uh, ace comicals um if you want to get in touch we are available on twitter under ace comicals that is where we are the most active you can find us on all the socials under ace comicals um leon where can we find you
1: you can find me on Twitter at Leon Everett.
0: Yeah, and you can find me on Twitter under at Bato. So if you want to get in touch, uh, you can DM me or the official Ace Comicals account. You can at us about comics, not about Crocs. Um, we will we, we we started this podcast because we want to talk about comics. So, you know, any, any anything you've got to add to discussion about anything we've talked about today, if you want to get involved, just at us or DM us. And uh, we'll be happy to continue talking. Uh, so yeah, that has been Ace Comicals 135. That is Ace Comicals. Over and out.